That young man, Micah Borns, is a very talented musician and, uh, and poet. And uh, he's obviously a guy who has wrestled with the meaning and the purpose of his life. And uh, he's apparently come to the conclusion that the greatest pursuit is servitude. And while his lyrics are original, Micah admits that that idea is not. It simply reflects the teaching of Jesus who said, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Uh, Over the past several weeks, as most of you know, we've been in a series called Upside Down Church, and we're talking about how the earliest Christians had a uh, huge spiritual impact on the people around them. Uh, The church turned its neighborhood, its city, its culture, and eventually uh, the world upside down, changed it forever, Uh, not by out-strategizing other religions or by uh, out-arguing their critics, but by out-loving, out-giving, and out-serving them i.e. Christians didn't just believe in Jesus as sort of this cognitive exercise, but actually followed his teaching and his example. And so uh, as we end this series, um, I want to explore with you what Micah Borns alludes to in his poem, and that is the paradox of greatness. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you open with me to the New Testament, to Luke chapter 22. Uh, If you need a Bible to use, you should find one in one of the chair racks down around you. Uh, Luke 22. Uh, to make sure we're all on the same, same page here, we know what we're talking about. By definition, uh, a paradox is a true statement that appears contrary to conventional wisdom and or is seemingly absurd. Uh, English author and philosopher G.K. Chesterton once defined paradox as truth standing on her head to attract attention. And if you know anything about Jesus, you know that he was extremely paradoxical in sharing the truth with the people around him. And he drew a lot of attention to himself because he had an unusual way of of interrupting routines and and shattering assumptions through his outrageous behavior and unorthodox teaching. He often said things like, happy are the sad, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. To find your life, you must lose it. But for me, the most paradoxical statement Jesus ever made, the the one that runs most contrary not only to cultural norms but human nature itself, is when he told his followers, you know, whoever wants to be great must be a servant. That is a really weird concept. And yet it's one of the last things he said to his followers uh, just prior to his crucifixion. In fact, here in Luke chapter 22, let let me set the context for you. It was Thursday night, the night of Passover, Passover is a holiday, is a holiday that Jewish people uh, celebrate where they celebrate God's rescuing his people from uh, captivity in, in, in Egypt, but not only rescuing them out, out of captivity, but rescuing them from death in Egypt. And so Jesus sits down with his disciples to uh, share the Passover Seder. Seder simply means, means meal. And at some point along the evening, he whispers to Judas, what you're about to do, go and do it quickly. And Judas abruptly leaves. And then Jesus passes out matzah to the remaining men, and he explains to them how it symbolized his his body that was to be sacrificed. He took a cup of wine. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And then without identifying uh, who it was, Jesus mentions that someone in the group was going to betray him. But he says, it doesn't matter because the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. In other words, everything that was unfolding and everything that would unfold Uh, was no accident. Jesus came for a purpose. He came to be the ultimate sacrifice for sin so that through faith in him, death would pass over all of us. 
But what happens next in that room is, is quite fascinating to me because, because the disciples react to what Jesus has just done and what he has just said, only it's not exactly how you might expect them to react. I mean, Jesus just shared some pretty, you know, heavy stuff. And I, I'm thinking the mood in the room had to be somewhat sober, somber, uh, and you, you would think that somebody would uh, kind of speak up and empathize with Jesus and say, Lord, are you scared about what's going to happen? Is there anything that we can do? Is there somehow that we can help? But no, instead, a strange discussion erupts among the guys. In verse 23, we're told they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. In other words, who would betray Jesus? And so they start speculating, speculating on who's the rat, who's the fink, you know, who's the traitor, who's the double crosser, uh, who was the biggest loser among them. And the Greek term for question here literally means to hotly contest something, something implying that the discussion got quite rigorous. Accusations probably started flying, fingers being pointed at each other, each guy offering a reason why the traitor had to be someone other than himself. And if you know anything about the, their personalities, the personalities of the disciples, you can just begin to hear the conversation. And Peter says, Matthew, it's probably going to be you who betrays Jesus. You're a total sellout. You're a tax collector. All tax collectors are selfish slobs and liars. And uh, Matthew, you know, he says, hey, hold on a second, Peter. You're the impulsive one always shooting off your big mouth. And then John blurts out, I think it's going to be Andrew. He's a bigot. He said nothing good could come from Nazareth. And Andrew reacts, John, shut up. You're, you're so touchy-feely all the time. Anybody puts a little pressure on you, you're going to cry and spill your guts. And then James jumps in. He says, no, it's Thomas. Tom is the betrayer. He's the biggest skeptic here. When you think about it, here, here was Jesus talking about his impending death and about establishing a new covenant, an eternal covenant, whereby his sacrifice would graciously provide the way of rescue from sin and death for anyone and everyone who believes. This Passover meal pointed directly to him. Uh, this time together was meant to be about him, but the disciples make it about themselves. It's like they forgot Jesus was even in the room. And my initial reaction to this is like, what a bunch of self-absorbed knuckleheads. And then, you know, I realized that I would, I'm just doing what they were doing. I'm pointing my finger at them. I'm judging them as losers, as if I'm any better. And I'm really, I'm really not. In fact, their interaction here shouldn't surprise any of us, really. I mean, the, these were just average guys. They weren't superheroes. They were human beings like all of us. And in case you haven't noticed lately, one of the main flaws of our human condition is self-absorption. What is that? What do I mean by that? Well, it means that the majority of our time, at least the majority of my time, is spent thinking about me, worrying about me, focusing on my interests, my desires, my thoughts, my preferences, my likes, my needs, always seeking to reassure myself and make myself feel better about myself by judging others and criticizing others. Now, there are 7 billion people living on this planet today, and most of the time I can only muster up enough, enough thoughts and concerns for one of them, and that's me. Do you guys know what I'm saying? I mean, I assume, I assume most of us look at this discussion between John and Matthew and all the rest, and we think, it's messed up, man. That's twisted. It's wrong. It's out of line. That kind of self-absorbed behavior should have no place, no place among Jesus' followers, which is true. It shouldn't. So why do we as Christians tolerate it in our churches, uh, in our families, and in our own lives? It is so sadly ironic. Here was Jesus 
just hours from being uh, falsely accused, falsely arrested, publicly humiliated, beaten and nailed to a cross, on which he would suffer a slow, agonizing death. It would be the most loving, gracious, unselfish act of human history. And he had to sit and listen to this, this incredible self-absorption of the disciples. I'm wondering how it made Jesus feel. And I don't know. What I do know is he allowed it to continue. And then what started out as uh, a discussion about who was the biggest loser ends up becoming an all-out debate on greatness. Verse 24, we're told that a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Now, there are some linguistic nuances here in the text that play that I think will help us better understand what exactly what was, what was going on. So bear with me just for a second. The word dispute here represents a very interesting Greek term. It's a combination of terms, really. Uh, it's, the, it's the Greek term phileo, meaning love, and nakia, meaning discord. Uh, put together, literally, it means the love of discord, which is not a good thing, no, no, right? Uh, it's, it's an eagerness to fight, a readiness to argue. And what were the guys ready to fight and argue about? Well, they were ready to fight and argue about who was considered greatest. The Greek term for considered has to do with external appearances. And the term greatest was used in the pagan world to refer to someone of high position, someone of prominence, someone of of importance to even the deities, the gods. So again, you put it all together, and here's my reiki summary of, of the verse. A contentious and eagerly participated in argument arose about who appeared greatest and who was most important to God. And so based on the language alone, we know the debate wasn't about genuine spirituality, but, but mostly about appearance. It was about perception. It was about image, which to a certain degree you know, makes sense because that was often, not always, but often the focus of first century Judaism. Those of religious prominence, those in the culture considered you know, blessed and closest and most important to God were those who were perceived as the good rule keepers, you know, the smartest, the educated, the eloquent, the wealthiest, they had the best clothes, they had the coolest, fanciest religious outfits. And so, so much of religion at the time had become about externals. And yet Jesus, how often did Jesus condemn that kind of thing? I mean, he was always challenging the religious elite, the religious experts who presented themselves as so much better than everybody else, appearing righteous on the outside when Jesus said they were spiritually corrupt on the inside. And the disciples, you know, they were influenced by that kind of religious culture. And so their self-absorption turns into blatant arrogance. And again, I can just imagine the repartee here. Peter says, look, I'm the rock. Jesus said it. I'm the rock. Obviously, God considers me the greatest among you guys. Deal with it. And John says, Peter, get over yourself, man. Jesus loves me more than you, more than everybody else here. Everybody knows it. As soon as Simon and Nathaniel and Philip and Jude start to speak, Andrew says, hey, you four be quiet. No one even knows who you are. (laughs) No one's even going to remember you guys. And so, you know, the argument continues. And again, the temptation is to immediately label these men as arrogant knuckleheads. But before we do, let me ask this. Do you ever, or have you ever, considered yourself greater in the eyes of God than somebody else around you? Honestly. Has any self-absorbed reasoning led you to think that you are more important, you are more favored, more righteous, more good, more loved, more superior to certain other people based on behavior or a lack of behavior or on looks or any other things, that you, you got this feeling that you are somehow better than them? You know, those people across the globe, 
across the street, across the office, across the table, across the aisle. You ever look down on someone, not merely because of who they are, but because of who you think you are? And I tell you this, if you've never had a sinfully inflated opinion of yourself, that's great, good for you. Congratulations. But, but if you at times struggle with arrogance, religious or otherwise, if you have these moments where you just catch yourself feeling or acting superior, welcome to my world. <laughs> welcome to the world of the disciples. Welcome to the human race where pride rests at the core of our problems with God, our problems with each other, our problems with the culture around us. The truth is, based on, on, on what's demonstrated here in this text, on what happens in this room, we are more like the disciples than we may want to admit. And let me be the first to confess, at times I can be equally self-absorbed and arrogant, just a, just a knucklehead who wrestles with the concept of greatness. Notice, though, Jesus allows for this discussion, and he listens as this debate rages on. But finally, it's like he has enough, and he interrupts the nonsense, and he redirects the focus. And he does so by saying, hey, you guys are talking like a bunch of godless pagans. In verse 25, he says, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those, uh, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. In other words, he's saying, hey, all of you guys know and recognize that with self-absorbed arrogance, pagan rulers ruthlessly dominate their own people, while at the same time give themselves really nice titles such as benefactor, which in the Greek literally means doer of good. Jesus' point here is they weren't doing good. They weren't doers of good. They just wanted to appear that way. Uh, the fact was pagan rulers like Caesar at the time were brutal. They were immoral. They were selfish, greedy, violent, and murderous individuals. They were all about power. They were all about wealth. They were all about glory, all about uh, being served. They cared less about those beneath them. And yet the world around them viewed them as great. And Jesus says, no. No, that is not greatness. Not as far as God is concerned. And so in verse 26, he says, to him, he says to his followers, he says, look, you are not to be like that. You are not to be like that. Don't be selfish, arrogant, domineering, and demanding, always looking to be served by those around you. Here's a new standard, Jesus said. You want to be great? Then you should be like the youngest. What do you mean by that? Well, very simply, Jesus was treating the guys as if they were brothers. Uh, it's a family illustration. And if you grew up the youngest kid in your house, you probably know what he's talking about. Because in terms of responsibilities, the youngest always gets the worst chores. Uh, in terms of food, they get the crumbs. Uh, in terms of clothes, they get the hand-me-downs, right? In terms of sitting around the TV watching the program, they get the floor. Uh, in terms of <laughs> pro, uh, power, the youngest has little, if any. They're just the gophers, the servants to their older, older siblings. And older siblings like to take advantage of that. Uh, when my kids were small... My, my oldest, Megan, uh, dominated the, little, uh, the life of her little brother, Corey, like nobody's business. I mean, she told him what to do, when to do it, where to do it, how to do it. She can't be brought him down the stairs one day in a dress and a hat and makeup. I said, hold it a second. Okay, we're going to change this dynamic, you know. But, but for the most part, he, he'd, he'd listen to her and he'd obey her. He'd do whatever because he was like a little walking, talking slave, really. But he did it because in innocence, in innocence, he loved his big sister, and so he would do anything for her. And that's the image that Jesus is portraying here. 
He says, guys, you want to be great, be like the youngest in the family and serve your brothers out of love. Serve, serve, serve your siblings. Then he says, if you want to be a ruler, if you want to be a leader, be like the one who serves. Now, Luke doesn't record this, uh, but we know the Apostle John does. And so we know that a little earlier in the evening, at some point during the meal, Jesus left his place of honor at the table, and he got down on his knees, and he performed the most menial task of the ancient Near East. He did something that was absolutely unheard of uh, in that society, because culturally speaking, uh, it was considered shameful. It was considered absolutely shameful to submit to and serve uh, a, a peer, let alone somebody of lesser Uh, social status. Yet Jesus ignores the social norms. He gets down on his knees. He acts like a servant, and he washes the disciples' feet. Do you know what the streets were like in first century Israel? Any idea what kind of foul, repulsive stuff people walked in with their bare feet and sandals and the mud, the food, the trash, human waste, animal dung? It was absolutely gross. You talk about toe jam and funky food odor, man. These guys had it. It was nasty business. It was nasty, and yet, yet Jesus humbly, humbly, you know, literally lowers himself. That's really what the word humble means. He literally lowers himself and attends to these men like a servant. It was unexpected. It was an outrageous thing to do, culturally speaking. And then he, then he asked, verse 27, he says, Who is greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? but I am among you as one who serves. Three times, Jesus uses the phrase here, one who serves, one who serves, one who serves. here's Here's my summary. Jesus says, you guys are sitting here arguing about greatness. He goes, I've spent the last three years or so trying to show you what true greatness is. I've demonstrated it to you tonight by washing your feet, and tomorrow I will become the sacrifice for sin. My body offered for you. My blood poured out for you. I haven't come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. How much clearer could Jesus be? He resolves the debate, and he essentially says, look, the divine criteria of greatness is humble servanthood, not self-absorbed arrogance. True greatness means recognizing the dignity and the value of of fellow human beings who are loved by their creator. It's about humility, exalting those around us, above us, ourselves. It's considering others as better and more important than ourselves. It's putting others first, sharing, helping, um, caring for, literally lowering ourselves to meet their needs. See, herein lies the paradox. Greatness means serving. And serving requires personal sacrifice. And we may say that that's not an easy thing. Jesus says, tell me about it. The message to his followers Um, might not have been easy, but it was quite simple, really. Jesus said, I'm your example. Follow me. In humility, love and serve others, no matter matter who they are, and I will lead you to greatness. So what does this mean for us uh, individually and corporately as a church? Um, I think that it means in order for us to be a church that, you know, turns our world upside down, we have to live the paradox, We have to live the paradox. We have to be a church that humbly serves the people around us, no matter who they are, what they look like, what they talk like, no matter what. And I'm not just, I'm not just referencing, you know, Sunday mornings, uh, and I'm not just talking about programs during the week. I'm talking about you and me getting outside of these walls 
engaging our community, relating to people, reaching out to help our neighbors, seeking ways to serve those in need, especially the discouraged, the sick, the lonely, the imprisoned, the poor, the marginalized, and the forgotten. In a society where upward mobility is the goal, we have got to be willing to intentionally lower ourselves and, uh, and humbly give of ourselves for the sake of others. How do we move in that direction? How do we move in the direction of this upside-down kind of greatness? And I've, I've been thinking a lot about it this week, and um, there are three, three steps I, I, I believe we need to take. Maybe there's more, but there are three that came to my mind. First, we need to, to be constantly reflecting on and remembering Jesus, reading the Gospels, remembering what Jesus taught, the idea of grace, remembering uh, you know, how he lived, how he loved, how, how in true humility he served everybody and everyone. He served all of us. Secondly, we've got to think outside the box in terms of how we can reach out to and serve the people around us. What are the needs of culture? What are the needs of people? What, what can we do for someone that is so unexpected, something that will demonstrate to them the outrageous love and grace of God? We should pray and ask God to show us someone and then ask God for an idea and how to help them. And when we get the idea, then we take the third step. We do it. We take action. We actually consider others more important than ourselves, and we go out and we serve them. And here's the deal, man. You, you, don't, you don't need to organize systems. You don't need elaborate programs or structural power uh, or powers in place to advance the good news of, of, of Jesus and the love and grace of God. You just have to recognize a need formulate an idea on how to meet that need, and then go and humbly serve that, that person or those people. Uh, just, um, just this week, someone cued me in on a, an amazing story, true story, about a group of Christians who, uh, who got an idea on how to serve some young men who were discouraged, marginalized, and some serious need. And they went out and, and they did something completely out of the box, totally upside down, culturally speaking. And um, I saw the news story and I was so moved by it that I thought you might like to hear the story as well. Check this out. When you walk around the grounds of Gainesville State School, you'll see just about everything you would on any other high school campus. There are students, teachers, a computer lab, and a gym. Except here, the students are convicted criminals. It's an incarceration facility for kids that have uh, violated law. Each day starts at a tiny dorm room they call home and continues marching from class to class, abiding by a strict schedule. In fact, the one thing that makes them feel like kids again is football. I'm just like you remote my own campus, you know what I'm saying? Everybody want to play on the football team. Just to put on a tornado's uniform is a reward, not a right. You must have good behavior and good grades. Not to mention, every game is played on the road, but it's worth it to escape on Friday nights and enjoy a small piece of freedom they gave up. But each week, there comes that constant reminder of who they are and what they've done. They don't treat us as a regular person in the world. They treat us like we're just some alien, just from somewhere out, just out of nowhere. I mean, they look at us like animals in a cage, like we don't deserve a second chance or another opportunity to be something in life. 
After hearing the ridicule and losing eight straight weeks, the Tornadoes were once again on the road. Traveling to play private school power, great find Faith for the first time, who had moved up a division. Their head coach, Chris Hogan, had a game plan in mind, and it had nothing to do with football. We were going to show them that in this country, if you make the right decisions, people will get on your side and support you, and it doesn't matter what your background is, you can make it. In a selfless suggestion, Coach Hogan sent out an email and requested his fans, his players, parents, do something so out of the ordinary in the football culture. He asked them to cheer for Gainesville State. These young men will not have any fans outside of the faculty from their own school. Their parents will not be there. I want some Lion fans to sit on the visitor side and cheer for the Gainesville team throughout the game. I thought, okay, this is, this is cool that Chris wants us to do this, leading up to it. But getting there that night, it was so easy to transition from being a fan for the Faith Lions to a fan for the Tornadoes. You know, the idea of, uh, of giving uh, and just being there to support those kids, those young men that have never had that before. So for the first time, the always-on-the-road Tornadoes would feel as if they were at home. And as kickoff approached, it was obvious something was different. It looked like they thought they were at the wrong end of the field because they know they don't have any fans. And we were just looking. I just looked. I just kept doing my plays. But I seen how they were split up, but I figured they just didn't have enough room on their side. I want y'all to line up in line. They make, they're making a spirit line. I like, say what, coach? <laughs> he said, can you beat that? And uh, he said, they're making a spirit line for y'all to run through. I like, yeah, that's what's up, son. That's what's up. And when it happened, it was just, it was dynamic. It was one of the most unbelievable things I'd ever seen. When I ran through this, like I felt like it was just like some like angels or something. That's all, all I felt. Cause I was just running through it as fast as I can. I just feel the wind rushing my face. That feeling of being unleashed lasted throughout the game, and so did the cheers. We had a penalty like the third play of the game, and I heard booing behind me. I turned around, and it was the, the great man fan. I remember when I was making like a play, I made a chocolate, and people were yelling my name. I'm like, I don't even know these people. <laughs> They were just like ours that night. I, I can remember rooting for their little quarterback, and I felt like he belonged to me. Our kids were their kids, and their kids were our kids, and all kids were the same. It wasn't enough to lead the Tornadoes to victory. As expected, Grapevine Faith won 33-14, and the Tornadoes finished the season 0-9. But it didn't matter, because for the first time in a long time, someone was in their corner, and that alone was worth celebrating. I was like, hey, y'all, this, this is going to get close, man. I don't care. I don't care if we lost tonight, man, because I was feeling good. I feel like we were losing the Super Bowl championship game or something. Like, we won that. I mean, winning, like, in our heart, spiritual-wise, I mean, we won. I've, I've been in state championships of different kinds, and there's nothing was like this, nothing. Isaiah and the rest of the Tornadoes will never forget the feelings they had on that night. And while it didn't erase the mistakes they've made, it showed 14 teenagers that regardless of the bad things they've done in their past, there was reason to look ahead. I cried. <laughs> when I, when, when after the game, I went back to my room, I cried. I think that your, your family ain't the only ones that love you. God ain't the only one that love you. Other people love you too. This is what I was hoping and praying would happen. I hope that it gave them hope. I see the world in a different way now. I mean, I'll just see, like, I'm the victim no more. So much love because, you know, I came from a broken home family. So, I mean, having all that love, it just, just rolls my spirits up. They got to be kids that night. They got to be a teenager. 
the experience Friday Night Football in Texas. So tell me, you know, that's not just a cool story, but for me, I saw it and I thought, that's how the church should be. Yeah? The church should be cheering on those less fortunate. We should be, we should be you know, doing outrageous acts of love and, 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 and serving others who, who are in need, it, it, encouraging them, helping them, um, you know, doing upside-down things for them. And here's the deal. Serving people, it doesn't have to be complicated. It just has to be thoughtful. It has to be intentional. Uh, it has to be done in, in genuine love and humility. So I was thinking about this. And I'm, I'm thinking, how about we agree this morning that um, uh, this week, we go out of here this morning, and this week we look for a way to serve somebody uh, in an outrageous way. Some neighbor, a coworker, fellow student, a stranger. And if you want to get really nuts, how about someone you don't get along with? You know, Jesus said, you know, it's easy. It's easy to love the people you love, who love you. It's a whole other deal to love those you don't get along with. How about we go out and we, we ask God to, you know, open our eyes to someone and, and, and identify, help us identify someone around us who's in need. Help, ask God to help us imagine what, what way we can help them. And then we go and we do it. And then we step back and see what happens and see the change that God brings about in that person's life. I want you to go and do that this week, and then I want you to, I want you to tell us your story. You know, uh, write us uh, uh, a note, send, you know, post it on our, our Facebook page uh, or something, but let's tell the stories of, of how God has changed someone because you looked outside yourself to serve somebody outrageously. Okay, we're going to give that a shot this week. So I was attending an event recently where... Um, I was introduced to somebody I'd never met before, and when they found out that I was one of the pastors here, they said, oh, you know, I, I've heard you have a great church. And I didn't say anything in response. I just sort of deflected the comment, partly because I'm never really sure how to handle those kind of statements. But more importantly, I'm not sure exactly how that person defined greatness. But I know this. I know God defines it. And it's his, it's his opinion that matters most to me. And it's a paradoxical deal. Because in the eyes of God, greatness means we follow Jesus' example and we humbly love and serve those around us, no matter who they are. And by God's grace, if we set out our hearts and our minds to do that, then together we will turn our community and our world upside down. We will. Let's pray. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would help us. Um, to look outside of ourselves. We acknowledge our own um, self-absorption. We're human. Uh, we have a tendency to do that. And we ask your forgiveness for it. And we, we, we ask God that you would instill in us a, a kind of a new standard, a new, a new vision, a new way of living that, that goes out beyond ourselves and reaches into the lives of those in need. And not just those we know, not just those we get along with, not just those who are just like us, but those who are different, those who we may not really know, those who we might not get along with. Um, but I pray that you would help us get beyond ourselves and be like Jesus and to humbly love and serve someone in his name. And 
by your power at work in and through us, turn that person's world upside down as they begin to understand personally, practically, and with firsthand experience what your love and grace is all about. And so I ask God that uh, you, would, you would do that in our lives this week and help us to recognize that we're not left here just for our own devices, but we're here to make a difference in the world around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.